We'll take your Bibles, if you would, as we continue our study through these Psalms of Ascent to Psalm 126. Psalm 126, which we read a moment ago. I'm really excited and encouraged about the good word that God has for us from this text today. So I was studying the text this week. I couldn't help but to think about a time in my life about eight to ten years ago. It was a time of, of really, really deep discouragement. I would even use this word. It was a time of, of very real uh, and I would say scary uh, despair. It was just the perfect storm. Uh, we had gone through um, some exciting but exhausting times at our previous church. Our family had just come through a very, very trying time. Um, I was struggling a lot with some physical issues. And so all of that kind of just came crashing down at, at one time. And I was physically and spiritually, emotionally, in every way just depleted. And it was scary because I had never experienced that before and I really didn't have a desire to do anything. All the things I'd always wanted to do, I didn't want to do anymore and I wasn't sure what I was going to do next and I always have that fear that I have no other gift except these ones and so if I don't do this, I don't know what I'm going to do and so I was, it, was, it was just a, a really tough time. So I was navigating uh, through that, I decided to do something a little bit crazy and uh, it, it would be maybe a little bit crazy for anyone, but for a pastor, really, really crazy because pastors don't usually do this. And even when I say what I did, you might be a little shocked, but I'm going to tell you, I decided, hold on, let me see if you're ready for this, to be honest. I know, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, one of the things that was happening that made it a little difficult for me to hide is not only the fact that I was just generally, generally um, irritable all the time and grumpy. Uh, but I had lost about 35 pounds, which is a lot uh, for a guy my size. And so the church was just kind of watching me waste away. And I think they had, a, they had a thought that something was going on. And so I decided just to tell them. And so I got up on a Sunday morning. And I just told them how I was struggling and what I, I didn't know what to do. And I had never been through this before. And I was a little bit worried about it. And I just was really, really honest. The next morning, my father, who uh, was far away but had, had watched the sermon uh, that morning, uh, called first thing in the morning. My dad loved Jesus. Uh, he was a good man. He spent about 60 years in full-time ministry before he died uh, a few years ago. And he called out of real love for me. Okay, he loved me. He cared about me. He was proud of me, but he called and he simply said this, Josh, I watched yesterday. I heard what you said. That was a really bad idea. He goes, you, you cannot, you can't tell people that stuff. You especially can't tell your church that. They're going to be worried about you. They're going to be scared. They might fire you. Uh, they had to have gone away a little freaked out by what was going on in your life. Josh, you just can't talk like that. And uh, he said all of that out of love, but he was really concerned that I had made a massive mistake. Now, part of that was just generational. And I get that. I don't think it's a good or a bad. It's just my dad's generation would have never done that, nor would the church of that generation maybe even responded to that. My generation tends to be more open and people tend to receive that a little bit better. So part of that, just generational, not good or bad, just, just different. But it wasn't just generational for me. It was convictional. In this season, I was growing in two deep convictions. One was that the church needed my honesty. They needed to know that their pastor was a real living human being that walked with God and got happy and got sad and had moments of discouragement and despair. I just really was convicted that it was, 
that the benefits outweighed any potential negatives for just honesty. But there was a deeper conviction. It was something new to me, and it was growing out of my own study of the book of Psalms. It was a conviction that our emotions are one of the primary ways in which God leads us in our journey with him. Our emotions are one of the primary ways that God leads us in our journey with him. Our emotions are a window into our own hearts. Listen, you need to know that. So the anger, the fear, the anxiety, the joy, the despair, all of that is is a window into your own heart. If you want to know how you're doing in very real ways, well, look at your emotions and allow them to show you who you really are. And if we're going to want to walk well with the Lord, we've got to know who we are. We've got to know where we struggle and where our deficiencies are and maybe some of the things that make us upset. And our emotions open up our heart. But our emotions also open up the heart of God. Our emotions drive us to God. Our emotions are an invitation into the heart of God. And I really believe that if we're ever going to be intimate with the Lord, which is my longing and desire for you, to know him, to know his heart, to know how his heart ministers to your heart, to really be intimate in a relationship with the Lord, you're going to have to be aware of how your emotions are leading you in that place. And so because of that, I believe to ignore your emotions, to squelch your emotions is spiritually harmful and unhealthy. Now, we as the people of God are not driven by emotion. We're driven by faith. We do things when we don't feel like it. We get up and read the Bible, whether we feel like it or not. We do right things and we do them by faith. And sometimes we don't feel like doing anything, but we keep walking by faith. So we're not driven by feeling. But listen, our feelings are a guide to us. They do help us to know the Lord and and to know how we walk with him. And our primary guide for understanding that is the book of Psalms. And particularly these Psalms of Ascent. Now, I keep reminding you every week, these Psalms of Ascent were written for the people of God as they made their journey uh, from their home up to Jerusalem a few times a year in order to worship. So these songs were sung really uh, geographically as they made movement up to the presence of God. These are not geographical for us, but they are spiritual for us. And they really serve us very well as a spiritual guide for our life from the moment we come to Christ, Psalm 120. From the moment we believe that Jesus Christ is the truth. From the moment we recognize that we believe the lie, that there's something better than the Lord, we then follow the lie, we wake up terrified because when we believe the lie, nothing gets better, everything gets worse. So the psalmist wakes up and has this realization and says, okay, Lord, I'm calling out to you and I'm ready to trust and follow you. I wanna go your way. I believe you are the truth. That's the beginning of the journey for everyone when you choose to trust and follow Jesus. And every psalm after that is really leading us, giving us some more instruction in the journey. And we haven't talked about this, but if you were just to go back and start in Psalm 20 and read all the way through 126, and you were to look for the way in which the emotions played a role in the spiritual journey, I think you would be surprised. I mean, even just Psalm 120. So it starts with real fear that I have, I have believed the lie and I'm living among liars and the psalmist is terrified. The psalmist knows that he's in trouble. He's in deep despair and he doesn't want to live there anymore. God, I don't want this. I don't like this. I don't want to be surrounded by this people. That is not the direction I wanted to go. But listen, 
It, it is that feeling that led him to call on the name of the Lord. It was the realization that this is miserable. I don't have any joy here. All the promises of life from the enemy and all the lies that I believe, there is no good here. I don't want this anymore. And so those feelings led the psalmist to say, Lord, I'm gonna cry out to you. Psalm 121, the psalmist looks to the hills and says, I need help. He's overwhelmed. He's afraid. He's afraid of the sun, that he might uh, die of a heat stroke. He's afraid that he might go crazy in the night. And so as he begins his journey, what happens? Well, all of a sudden, he had that moment of confidence that then was followed by a moment of just insecurity, and that led him to go to the Lord. Psalm 122, it, it's, it's the feeling of gladness and joy that led the psalmist to continue to come to the house of the Lord. Sometimes we wake up and go to church because it's the right thing to do. And whether we feel like it or not, we do it. At least that's what my mom said to me growing up, right? Whether we feel like it or not, we go to church, and we do. But the reality is, many times we're led to this place because we know there's joy in the presence of God. And we know that we're going to feel better after we're here. And so the psalmist was led into the God's presence, led to keep journeying because of emotions and the desire for that joy. You could go ev through every single one of these psalms and you would realize that the emotions that we experience are playing a primary role in leading us into the heart of God. And listen, we don't walk by feelings, we walk by faith, but those feelings prompt us. Emotions don't control us, but they do guide us. And Psalm 126 gets us maybe more in tune with that than we have been yet. Because it highlights what are probably the two most basic and powerful and revealing emotions that we experience. The kind of two ends of the emotional spectrum. There is sorrow and joy. That's really the feel of the psalm. And at first when you read it, it's hard to know if it's a psalm of joy or a psalm of sorrow. And the reality is it's, it's both. But it is mainly coming out of a place of current sorrow and sadness. When you read it, you'll realize that it's a deeply emotional psalm. It's not just little emotions, it's great big emotions. Let's read it together in Psalm 126. If you're there, say amen. Listen to these words and notice the depth of emotion that is here. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And this is not written by someone who has been taught to ignore or suppress his emotions. This is written by someone who sees emotions as an invitation into the heart of God. Now, we really understand in verse four, the exact season the psalmist is in. It is a season of, of sorrow. So verse four is the prayer of the psalm. So this tells us the current situation. The prayer is this, Lord, would you restore our fortunes? Lord, would you bring us into the back, back to a, a place of joy? So the Negev was, was a desert. Most of the year, the, um, uh, these little places that looked where streams would have flowed were just dusty and dry and deserted. There was nothing there whatsoever. 
But one time of the year in the spring, the rain would come and the waters would begin to flow. And that which was once dry and dusty and deserted and brown would begin to flow with raging water. And because the water was there, flowers would begin to spring up and things would begin to be green on the shore and everything would change in that moment when the waters flowed. What the psalmist is saying in this moment is this, Lord, my soul right now is like the desert land. I'm dry, it's dusty, I'm, I'm weary. I'm not refreshed, I'm a bit discouraged. So God, what I'm asking now is that the rain would come. I think about John 7 when Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his very soul will flow rivers of living water. The psalmist is saying, God, that's what I want. There's no rivers flowing. It's very dry here and I feel it. But Lord, I want the rivers to flow once again. And that's the season that he's in. And when he says restore, what he's saying is, I want, I want the spring back. He's in a season of sorrow, but he's longing for joy. Now listen, that feeling will be a reality for every one of us at some place in our life. Some of us experience this moment by moment. I think a lot of this is determined by our own natural disposition. Uh, I tend to be more of an emotional person, so I tend to be up and, and down a little bit more. My wife, praise God, seems to be generally more steady, which, God, I'm so thankful for that. What a blessing. Thank the Lord for that. So some of us maybe struggle on a moment-to-moment, -moment, a day-by-day -day basis, but I assure you, if you're really walking with the Lord, you will have some seasons in which it just feels dry, some seasons in which it seems heavy, some seasons in which it feels just a heaviness of the weight of just life and the brokenness of the world around us. And the question is, well, what do we do? Like, what do we do in those moments when sorrow hovers like a dark cloud and we long for the joy? How do we navigate these moments in a way that leads us to Jesus? To intimacy with Jesus that doesn't push us further away, but draws us closer in. And that's what Psalm 126 shows us. And if we view these Psalms as a guide for us, listen, what I would say is this. This sermon right here is kind of another page in your guidebook. And you may need it today, but you may not. But you're going to need it at some point. At some point, when you feel the seasons of sorrow, you're going to say, listen, I don't know what to do right now. And you're going to remember Psalm 126, and you're going to take this out of your guidebook, and you're going to say, all right, now I know what to do. And so whether it be now or by faith, knowing that you're going to need this later, let's think about what to do when the sorrow kind of comes over us like a dark cloud. This gives us instruction in three ways. The first thing we do is this, is we remember and we give thanks for past joys. Write that down. We remember and we give thanks for past joys. That's verses one through three. Verses one through three is past tense. It's, it's looking back. We know that. Verse four is the present tense, but it says when the Lord restored, past tense, the fortunes of Zion, we were, past tense, like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled, past tense, with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said, past tense, among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So the psalmist, in the midst of the sorrow, is just looking back. He's remembering what God had done in the past. Now, if you think about it, this in terms of the history of the people of Israel, it could be a number of situations. It could be some big ones, like the people of God being enslaved in Egypt and God delivering them. It could have been the story of the people exiled hundreds of years later in Babylon and then God restoring them once again. 
or it could be a thousand other moments of their journey in which God turned their circumstances and their situation around. But either way, they're remembering the moments that they have experienced themselves. And I believe probably more than that, the moments that they saw recorded in the word of God. And one of the reasons this is so important for us is we have stories recorded of the ways in which God has restored people time and time again. And we need to see the character of God in that way. And so they're, they're looking back at the way in which God had restored them and delivered them. And I love that little phrase in verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes. That word restore means to reverse our situation, to turn things around. It's so heavy here that they're talking about being enslaved or being in exile, being oppressed, being restored, to look at the end of verse one, like those who dream. <laughs> it's really saying, God, I remember that time in which we were in a situation in which we were pinching ourselves. We thought, could this be real? Could things be this good? Could I, could I be this happy? Could, could I really be experiencing this much abundance? Literally, they're saying, we were like people who dreamed. We were living the dream situation, the dream scenario. God, we were in a really bad place and you completely restored our fortunes. You turned things around. We went from having nothing to having everything. We went from a nightmare to a dream. So it's just stopping and saying, listen, if I, if I look back at what God has done in our history, and if I look back at my own life, I remember times in which God has, has done this in our lives. And it's not just they experienced, I see this in verse two, some over-spiritualized idea of joy. No, look at this. They were filled with laughter. Filled with laughter. Their tongue with shouts of joy. I mean, what a great feeling. Is there anything better than, than being in a moment in which you just can't stop laughing? You're laughing till it hurts. Someone has done something so funny or you've experienced something so funny that you just cannot stop laughing. There's something so good about that. And it says that out of their mouth is coming not just words of joy, I'm really happy today. There's just these exuberant shouts of joy that they can't keep in. It's like they can't suppress the joy. They're remembering this as recorded in scripture that the people of God have experienced, but I think even in their own life, times in which they said that God has done something good. It was so evident, look at the end of verse two, that the nations around them begin to see it. The nations around them begin to say, wait a minute, the Lord's done really great things for them. And their God has done good things. They were enslaved and look at them now, they're in the promised land. They were exiled and now look, God has restored them in the way in which he intended it to be. The nations were noticing. And when's the last time someone noticed that you had joy? And they stopped and looked at your life and said, man, the Lord has done good things for them. This is what they're experiencing. But I love in verse three that they acknowledge that it's true. You know, the Lord has, I have the word has circled in my Bible just for emphasis. You know, the Lord really has done great things for us. Like when I think about what God has done, they're right. The Lord has really done great things for us. Now the application for us is, is to remember the times in which God has restored our fortunes. To remember the time in which God took a time of sorrow and turned it into a time of joy. When God took a really devastating circumstance that we thought we could never get over and you look back and realize, you know what? I got through it and I'm better because of it. Maybe something you would have never chosen, but something that God has turned into something beautiful that was never intended by the enemy to be that way. Because this is just what God does. 
Maybe when he took care of a financial situation or he healed someone that was sick or he brought a prodigal home. Any time in which we've seen God supernaturally just turn things around. But listen to this. Even if you can't think of a situation in your life in which something that dramatic has happened, listen. If you have trusted Jesus Christ alone as the payment for your sins, you've chosen by faith to follow him, and you are in fact a child of God, every single one of you can say with confidence in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for me. There is no believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that could not make Psalm 126 verse 3 their life verse. In the midst of the most difficult situation you've ever experienced, if you know Jesus, you can say, my life verse is, the Lord has done great things for me. To which people say, well, it doesn't look like it. You say, no, you don't even know the story. Because at the very least, God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son. At the very least, he saved you from the lies of the enemy. At the very least, he saved you from eternity in hell and has guaranteed your eternal joy at the least. Salvation is a reversal of fortunes. <laughs> That's what salvation is. It was, man, you were headed in a desperate and damning situation but God has reversed it all and he's turned it into something good and something beautiful and even though in this life there is still sorrow the reality is my fortunes my eternity has been reversed the way in which that works at salvation is it's both immediate and gradual because at that moment you give your life to Christ listen your fortunes have been reversed because God has guaranteed you the fullness of his blessings for all of eternity. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you because you're united with Christ. And Ephesians 1 said, every blessing in the heavenly places is yours. So that's an immediate reversal. But, but some of that is experienced just in the day by day of walking with the Lord. And seeing that our God is really good at taking broken lives and just slowly but surely putting them back together. And healing your heart and, and healing your soul and mending broken relationships. And so, yes, the fullness of that joy is later, but we experience some of that right now. As we walk day by day, we realize that God really is slowly but certainly just restoring us. He's making us new. He's doing something fresh and new in our lives. And it's just really important for us to remember those things. It's important for us to think back to the time in which God saved us. It's important for us to know with certainty that we have been saved. It's important to remember the times in which God has done good things for us, not only because it reminds us of God's heart and how he loves us, and it reminds us of God's ability, and it reminds us of his consistent character, that from the very beginning to the very end, God has just been restoring people. He's been reversing fortunes. But more than all of that, you know, it's just really important for our own perspective in our times of sadness, just to remember that God is good. Because we often forget that. It's amazing how quickly we can go from blessing the Lord to cursing the Lord. It's amazing how quickly we can go from, God has been so good to everything in my life is terrible and there's never been anything good ever. We can get there rather quickly. And so it is, we have to make a disciplined habit of celebrating on a regular basis and giving thanks to God for the good things he has done because God has done good things for us. The Lord has been good to us. He is good and he loves you and he is always working on you and he's restoring you moment by moment, day by day. And so we, as a regular habit, stop and look back 
particularly in the moments of sadness, and say with Psalm 126, verse 3, the Lord has done great things for me. God has done so much good. Just the common grace of God in our lives to wake us up, to let us come here this morning, sit on a cushioned chair in an air conditioning room and hear the word of God is just the common grace of God more than most of the world has this morning. The Lord has done great things. So we remember and we give thanks for past joys. But it also tells us what to do in the present. We pray and work in the present sorrow. So the first thing is, look, we look back and we remember and thank God for past joys. And then we look ahead and we pray and work in our present sorrow. So we have to be honest about the situation. This is interesting because when I started to understand verse 4, I was reading this chapter over and over and I thought, this is a chapter of joy. And then I realized it kind of is, but the current situation is not. Verse 4 is, is really the feel of the, of the chapter, restore our fortunes, O Lord. And so what's happening is, They've been in, in, sor- in times of sorrow, but then the Lord brought them out. And so they're dreaming. And I just think this is such a great picture of our life. And so they were dreaming. God, this is a dream. Things could not be better. And then all of a sudden, where they are again in the desert again. And so we do this. Life does this to us, right? Have you ever just woken up really happy in the morning, had a great time with the Lord, and like 45 minutes later, it's just, that's gone. Something happened, and it's gone. Well, that's just, that's life. This is just how it works in a broken world. And they're experiencing this as a whole. Man, we we were in a bad place. God delivered us. We were dreaming. This is incredible. Couldn't stop laughing. Lord, I'm in the desert again. It's really dry, thirsty, parched. I just don't know where to go. And so that's exactly where they are. But as they look back and remember, they look forward and and look at, they they begin to pray. Do you notice the connection between verse one and verse four? It's important. Remember when the Lord restored our fortunes? God, you did it. I remember when you did it. Verse four, restore our fortunes, O Lord. You did it once. Would you, would you please do it again? Would you come and allow the, the rains of the presence of God to come and to, and to fill me up and to refresh my very heart and, and soul? I think about Psalm 51, verse 12, when David, listen, had lost his joy because of his own sin. And sometimes that's what happens. Our own stupidity, our own sin. Sometimes it's because the sin of others. Sometimes it's because something done to us, something we've done. But whatever way, Psalm 51, David says, Lord, would you restore to me, same word, the joy of my salvation? Let me tell you something amazing to me about the Lord. He loves when we pray the same prayers over and over and over again. He doesn't get tired of it. He doesn't get tired of you for asking for help every single day. He loves it. He doesn't get tired for you every day saying, Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. Lord, forgive me. Give me mercy. Give me grace. No, he loves for us to come to him with the same needs every day and ask him over and over. And he never goes, seriously, that again? Because every time we come with the same prayer and the same request, it's a reminder of how needy we are and of how good God is to continue to answer and provide. And so he doesn't say, God, I apologize. I I hate to come again. No, he says, Lord, I remember what you did. And as that song we often sing here, I seen you do it before and I'm asking that you would do it again. That's what he's saying. Remember what you did before? Would Would you do that again? Would you restore our fortunes? 
So in our sorrow, we, we keep praying, we keep trusting, we keep expecting. We believe the promise of John 7 that God will allow the rivers to flow once again. He's done it before and he'll do it again. It feels to me like praying is, is really this act of faith in which we wait on God to do something only God can do. It is an act of faith because it says, God, I believe you. And I believe you've got what I need. And that's one of the beautiful things about going to the Lord. It's you acknowledging, God, what I need, uh, I can only get from you. By the way, we learned that from Psalm 120, that when we go anywhere else, we're always disappointed. When you go to anyone else to find the joy, we're disappointed. So we say, Lord, I'm coming back to you. You've got what I need. And so we, with faith, wait on the Lord to do something. But maybe the most encouraging thing to me about this text was the realization that we don't just wait in times of sorrow and sadness. There is something more active that we do. We don't just pray, we work. Look at the truth that's, that's described here. It says in verse five, those who sow in tears. So imagine the picture, there's tears flowing down. What are they doing? They're just sowing the seed shall reap with shouts of joy. Look, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing. So the seed is falling and the tears are falling. There's weeping. But in the weeping, what are they doing? They're sowing. They keep moving. Shall come home with, with shouts of joy. I love the reality here that in the midst of all of the tears and all of the sadness, we just keep sowing. We just keep working. We don't give up. We keep trusting that the Lord is going to keep his promises. We believe that when we stop and don't do the right things, things get worse, not better. So we just keep doing the things we know to do. Lord, what do we do next? We'll, we'll, we'll just do, keep doing the right thing. Keep doing the right thing and don't stop. And in the same way, in our times of sorrow, we have a hard time believing that anything ever good happened. Oftentimes, the one thing we don't want to do in our sadness is more sowing. We just, we want to stop. We want to sleep. We don't want to do anything. And what the enemy does is say, listen, all that sowing you did before, it didn't do any good. You're not helping yourself. Just take a break. You don't need that. Take a break from God. Take a break from the Lord. No, you don't need that. But we just make things worse. And so he says we keep praying, but we also keep sowing. We keep doing the right things, even if we don't feel like it. Came across a quote this week about Psalm 126, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. I think it describes the need of us to keep sowing very well. Listen to what John Piper says on this verse. Listen. He says, so here's the lesson. When there are simple, straightforward jobs to be done, and you are full of sadness and tears are flowing easily, go ahead and do the job with tears. Be realistic. Say to your tears, tears, I feel you. You make me want to quit life. But there's a field to be sown and dishes to be washed and cars to be fixed and sermons to be written. I know you will wet my face several times today, but I have work to do and you will just have to go with me. I intend to take the bag of seed and sow. And if you come along, then you'll just have to wet the rose. Then say on the basis of God's word, tears, I know that you will not stay forever. The very fact that I just do my work, tears and all, will in the end bring the harvest of blessing. So go ahead and flow if you must, but I believe, I don't see or feel it, but I believe that the simple work of my sowing will bring sheaves of harvest and your tears will be turned to joy. You just, you just keep sowing. 
You keep doing the right thing day by day. As I was thinking about this and I was kind of writing out this sermon, I just began to write down applications for this. And I realized it would be a great sermon just to preach on that one verse right here. Psalm 126 verse 5. But I'm just going to give you a little bit here. And I think about that with raising children. You just keep sowing. And you don't know, like, the outcome, you just keep sowing. You keep sowing. You go discouraged. You just keep sowing. You keep sowing. I think about that in your marriage. You just keep sowing. When things don't think, seem like they can be restored, when it seems like things are going the wrong way, you just keep sowing. In your moments of despair and disappointment, in great loss, what do you do? You just keep sowing. You just keep doing the right thing. In evangelism, what do you do? You just keep sowing the seed. With a prodigal child, what do you do? You keep sowing the seed. You just keep sowing and sowing and sowing, doing the right things. And you do not let the enemy allow you to stop doing the right thing in the midst of the sadness and sorrow. And you've heard me say this before, but I hate that phrase when someone says, hey, don't worry, someday you're going to understand. There is no place in scripture that says someday you're gonna understand. The reality is this. You have hope because you believe in a God who already understands. And he sees from the beginning to end and he's navigating every circumstance in your life. So we don't keep sowing in the hope we're gonna understand. We keep sowing because we believe that there can be all kind of harvest that is reaped that you will never ever see or know about. So it may not be in your generation. You may die having sowed the seed of evangelism and of peace and of joy into your children, into your spouse, into the workplace, and you may never see the fullness of it, but God blesses those who continue to sow the seed even in sorrow. That's just a fact. So he says, keep praying and keep working, keep sowing that seed. Because Galatians 6, 9 says this, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It's a promise. We pray, we work, and we don't let sorrow win. And that leads us to the last point. So we look back, we remember and give thanks for the past joys. We look forward. We pray, we work, we sow the seed, but we also look forward to the other side, to the future, and we wait with hope for future joy. That's the third one. We wait with hope for future joy. So past joy, remember, give thanks. Present circumstance, pray and work. But we also look forward and wait with hope for future joy. Look at the shalls of verse five. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. The reality is the final outcome for everyone who knows the Lord, listen, the final outcome for everyone who knows the Lord is the end of verse six, which I have underlined in two colors, circled and put in little stars by. Because listen to this. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to me. Your sorrow is real. Your pain is real. Your hurt is real. What has been done to you is real. All of that is real. And let me tell you what's more real is the fact that you shall come home with shouts of joy. That's it. That's the future of every believer. You shall come home one day. The Lord will welcome you home and you will come home with shouts 
of joy. That is how the story always ends for every believer. And so there's just like this roller coaster of emotions throughout life. And there's a lot of tears and there's a lot of weeping and there's a lot of sorrow because life is hard and you're broken and those who raised you were broken and those who you're raising are broken. And there's just brokenness everywhere. And you get hurt and you hurt other people and you get betrayed and you get disappointed and you make mistakes and you cause pain. But after all of that, this is how the journey ends. You come home with shouts of joy. That's it. That's the future for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray and we work and we look back and we remember, but we continue to look forward with hope, with the absolute confidence that the best is yet to come. And we say to ourselves in the darkest moment, this moment is not the end of my story. The end of my story is the end of Psalm 26. Someday I'm gonna come home with shouts of joy. And my eternity is shouts of joy. We read this a couple of weeks ago, but I, I wanna read it one more time. Don't turn there. But just listen carefully as I read these words of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Here it is, Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That moment is only possible if you show up with tears. That's the only way it's possible. And I really think that's a bit of the expectation of life. There's so much goodness and just daily joy in walking with the Lord. I can say to you it's real. And one of my great desires is for you to walk intimately with the Lord and know the goodness of walking with him, the joy of his presence. But the truth is there's just a lot of sorrow in a broken world. And it seems that at times we come to the end of our journey and we just end up with a tear. I think one of the reasons this may be such a beautiful picture to me is maybe because I have four daughters, but I love the fact that God doesn't look at us and say, would you just stop crying? He doesn't do that. He takes his hand. Every single person. He puts it right on our face. He looks us in the eye and he just, just wipes the tear off. Just wipes it off. And he says this, that's the last tear that's ever gonna fall. That's how your story ends. A gentle, loving hand that will feel in that moment when he touches your cheek as if you are more loved and more cherished than you've ever felt in your entire life. And he will wipe the tear away and he will say, that's the last tear. And the rest of eternity is shouts of joy. And so we walk day by day, moment by moment, and we, we weep. We weep over those we love. We weep over our own sin. 
But every day as we trust and follow Jesus, we remember and give thanks. We stop and make a habit of thanking the Lord for what he's done. We look forward, we keep praying, we keep working, we, we look to eternity and we believe that the best is yet to come. And then we keep telling ourselves the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is that it is because and only because of the resurrection of Jesus that we can be absolutely confident that our eternity is going to be filled with unceasing and eternally increasing joy. That's your future. And don't let the devil tell you anything different. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.